so good. Uh, we are going to be looking at John chapter 18 as sort of a jumping off point. We're going to hit a lot of scripture today, but we're starting a new sermon series called, uh, that I'm calling Essential Jesus. And the thing about Jesus uh, is, well, I mean, he is essential. Uh, the, the thing about Jesus is Jesus is so interesting and mysterious and beautiful. And Jesus contains within himself and within the life that he calls us to several seemingly contradictory ideas, several seeming paradoxes or tensions, if you will, that are unique to his way of life and to his calling to each of us as individual believers. And so we're going to kind of just sort of meditate on these. Like next week, we'll be looking at the idea that Jesus is both God and man, that Jesus is both human and in some sense representative of the creating God of the universe. That's a tension. That's an interesting idea uh, and one that merits some careful thought and careful consideration. And oftentimes what has happened is that people uh, have tried to resolve tensions that God never intended to be resolved. God actually designed there to be tension uh, in the person of Jesus. And even in, in his very nature, we find all of these tensions. And so today we're really considering the tension between Jesus' power and his nonviolence, or his, 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 uh, his strength and his gentleness, or his, his, uh, his ability to, uh, to overpower, to force, and yet his, uh, his willingness and his attitude of nonviolence and gentleness. And as we look at that, we're going to look at this one story in John 18 as sort of a jumping off point and then dive deeper into what the rest of the scriptures or some more of the scriptures have to say. Before we look at that, uh, would you just pray with me and ask God to speak to us through his word? Lord, we know that when we come to the Bible, we bring a lot of ourselves. And we bring a lot of our culture and we bring a lot of assumptions and even agendas sometimes, God. But Lord, uh, I just ask that this morning that we could lay those at your feet and that we could hear your words to us and for us. That we would be just childlike enough to really believe what you say and to not try to wiggle out of anything, but to to draw closer to you in obedience and just, just, just take a step closer to you and to just say, yeah, I want, I want to live in that tension. I want to live in faith. I want to trust you more. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would, you would cancel, that you would stop any work of the enemy that would prevent that this morning. And that you would open our ears so that they hear and that you would open our eyes so that they see, and that your spirit would speak to us through this book that we believe you inspired. So God, speak to us now through your word. And we ask for these things. In the name of the word incarnate in Jesus, we ask for these things. Amen. All right. Let's take a look at John chapter 18, verses 1 through 13. It said this, that when he had finished praying, by the way, Jesus is in Gethsemane in this scene. So he's like, 
uh, praying for God to, if possible, make a way for him to not be crucified. And like he knows, he knows what's coming. He kind of he understands what's about to happen. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the scene, right? This is like Good Friday night. Like the, or, no, I think this is actually Thursday night is when this all starts. He gets arrested on Thursday. So this is like Thursday night after instituting communion. Right? So that's the scene, right? So then when he, that being Jesus, had finished praising, praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and, he's, and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And so Judas came into the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is the power, right? This is the power. I'm going to just stop here for a minute and just say, when Jesus is saying, I am he, Jewish audiences, which is be most of the people who would have been reading this, most of the people who would have kind of been familiar with this have some kind of context of understanding that the name of God, Yahweh, is how we sometimes translate it, uh, in most Bible translations, it, it is all caps, the Lord. Uh, that's the tetragrammaton. That's the name of God. It's kind of impronounceable. Uh, it's also been mispronounced and mis, uh, mis, uh, said as Jehovah. Uh, this is yod heh vav heh. This is God's name. And that name comes from when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He said, I am who I am. The idea here is that God just is. You don't move God. God is the source of all life, the, the creator and sustainer of the universe. And when Jesus says, I am, that's when the people fall over. He's sort of revealed. It's, a, it's, like, it's like a small revelation of his power. And so when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's like he says, I am he, whoa, you know, like they just instinctively and they f- fall over backwards. And that really sets the context for the rest of this scene. And so then when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked him, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So basically, this is the scene of Jesus getting arrested, and there's some details there at the end. Okay, what's going on here? So Jesus, who is the Word of God, he, is, he was with God at the beginning. Uh, all power and majesty and honor belong to him uh, he is the lamb who sits on the throne in Revelation. Jesus, the, 
who has all the power, who walks on water, who commands storms to cease and be still, and they do, who heals lepers and raises the dead and makes blind eyes see and teaches his disciples to do the same in his name and drives demons out of people and confronts injustice and does all these wonderful things. This Jesus willingly gets arrested. And when he sees one of his followers start to react violently, starting to try to protect him, starting to try to, you know, help him and keep him safe, Jesus stops that immediately. He shuts him down. He stops Simon Peter in his tracks. And then, in, actually, if we read other, other accounts of this story, there's, there's this account of Jesus being arrested. There's detailed descriptions of this in all four Gospels. This is one of those things where we've got total harmony on all the Gospels. Everybody agrees that this part happened. It was kind of a really important part of the story. We know from Luke's telling that Jesus actually heals this guy named Malchus. Only John tells us that his name is Malchus. But in Luke twenty-two fifty-one, it says, But Jesus answered, No more of this! And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And so why is he named in Luke's gospel, but he's named in John's gospel? Well, to the people that John was writing to, or to, to the community that John was interested in, it was probably the case that somebody in that community had some kind of a connection to Malchus, if Malchus himself wasn't part of that community. And so the reason that it was written down, the reason why you get these little name drops in the scripture of just like these random people seem to get named here and there, Whenever you see that little random name drop, what that is, is that's in the original Christian community, that was people saying, hey, if you want to know what happened, you can ask this guy. You Go talk to Malchus. Malchus was there. His ear got chopped off and Jesus put it back on. It was crazy. You should go talk to him if you want to know, did this really happen? Was this really real? Did these things take place? So Jesus heals him. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, it, it, Jesus also says this. It says, that Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And so here we have these statements. Here we have this action. We see the example of Christ. And really, I think what I'm trying to do in this sermon is just point out that while we are people who believe in power, we are people who want to cooperate with God. We are people who want to do all the kind of things that Jesus did. We want to tell storms to divert. We want to uh, be the kind of people who can walk on water. We want to be the kind of people who really believe that God can and will do anything that he wants to do in and through us because he is alive inside of us. His spirit is living in our flesh and blood, in our bones. His body and blood is gathered here together to worship him and to obey him and to speak his words and to do his works. We want to be people who flow in the power of the Holy Spirit and who agree and who say yes to everything that God wants to do. And I think it's important for us to understand that God wants to be peaceful, that God's power is not for destruction. When Jesus, you know, when, when James and John are saying, you know, they're mad at the Samaritan towns, you know, do you want us to call down fire upon them? No, no, I don't want you to use the power of God to call down fire on these towns. That is not what I want you to be about. And I don't want you to be about uh, harming people. Nonviolence is so central 
to the way of Jesus and so central to his mission. And at the same time, I have to recognize that there's some tension and there's some controversy here because at certain times, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, God does command violent action for some greater purpose. And there is tension there. And we see that in the life and the ministry of Jesus. This was one of the major stumbling blocks people had with Jesus because they were expecting him to overthrow Roman oppression and to liberate the people of Israel. And Jesus did liberate the people of Israel, but he also liberated the oppressors. And he did it in a way that was completely unexpected, completely counter to the way that every human revolution is orchestrated through violence. Jesus orchestrated a completely different revolution that has continued. And I just have to be careful here, though. I have to acknowledge a few things before I move on. I have to say that violent thoughts, actions, desires, or occupations do not cancel the love of God. That's really important to understand. And so what I'm not trying to do today is to say, don't grow up and become a police officer, or don't grow up and become a soldier, or that if you are a soldier or a police officer— that you are somehow disqualified from discipleship in Jesus. That is, not the method, that is not the message here. I'm also not trying to say anything about, uh, about politics uh, or, or a hobby of gun ownership, okay? Like, that's not really what this is about. So if you hear that, uh, please don't interpret me through the highly politicized environment that we are living in. Because what we're trying to talk about, what we're trying to get at this morning is just saying that Jesus is about peacemaking. And peacemaking is directly opposed to politicizing. Politicizing is all about grabbing power. It's who gets to be in control, who gets to tell you what to do, who gets to say this is how it's going to be based on our government, and the people with the guns are going to enforce this. That's what politicizing is about. Jesus' people are not to be about politicizing. Jesus' people are to be about peacemaking. And peacemaking is distinct and different from peacekeeping. I don't know if you remember this. I almost put a a picture up here on on the screen, but I just remember the word peacekeeper when I was growing up in the, in, in the early, late 80s, early 90s, when we had the Persian Gulf War, there was a missile called the Peacekeeper Missile. And I just thought, that's really weird that there's a weapon of mass destruction called Peacekeeper. But as I've grown older and as I've kind of understood what a lot of times the differences between peacekeeping and peacemaking are, it really makes a lot of sense to me because peacekeeping is so much about just maintaining the status quo, maintaining that the powerful stay powerful, that the empires that exist remain in power and not caring about the violence that continues to happen to oppressed people, not not caring about the voices that are getting run over, not caring about the people who are being harmed. Peacemaking by contrast, often requires an act of confronting the places where peace does not exist. And here's the truth. Lots of places in our world, peace does not exist. But the way of Jesus is peace. He is the Prince of Peace. And at the center 
of his way of doing life and ministry is a thread of nonviolence. It is an attitude of welcoming all kinds of people and perhaps especially violent people into that way of peace and changing and turning from the use of violent force and towards making peace wherever we find ourselves through nonviolent means, even while carrying the power of God inside us. And so it's important to remember, you know, Jesus did welcome and heal uh, a centurion. You know what a centurion is? That's a commander of 100 Roman soldiers. And so uh, that, that centri- century, right, century means 100, right, cent. I always tell my math students, you know, when I'm trying to help them uh, figure out, you know, uh, you know, per cent. Per cent means literally per 100, because that root cent means 100. 100 legs on a centipede, 100 centimeters in a meter, 100 soldiers in a Roman centurion that he commands. A century is 100 years, right? So the Roman centurion, he comes to Jesus, and he, well, he actually sends a delegation to Jesus, right? He sends some underlings, because he's like a general. He's like top brass. And so this high-up commander in the Roman military complex uh, the, this high-up commander sends somebody to Jesus and says, hey, will you heal my servant? And Jesus says, all right. And he starts moving that way. And then while he's on the way, the centurion says, hey, actually, you don't need to come. Just say the word because I understand how authority works. I say to my people, go here, do this, and it gets done. And I say to them, go, go do that thing, and it happens. You just say the word, and I know that my I know that my servant will be healed. And when Jesus heard this, this is what he said about the centurion. He said, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And here's the thing. I think sometimes when we read this story, we say, okay, it's cool that the centurion had faith. He had great faith. Jesus can do things even if he's not physically right there with the people that he's praying for. We can pray and expect God to do things. We don't have to do only hands-on prayer ministry, though that is a biblical model that we definitely engage in and will engage in at the end of this service. But, uh, but God can do things even when it's not, you know, contact sport, right? Uh, but here's the thing. I think sometimes we miss the scandal that Jesus is healing a soldier, Like, when we read this story, do we see the surprise in that? Like, we've been taught that the Samaritans are other. We've been taught that prostitutes, it's it's scandalous that Jesus would welcome and, and take care of prostitutes. But do we see this story in the same kind of way? And I'm not trying to dog on anybody who serves in the military. I don't understand the level of sacrifice and bravery that requires. This is not a dig on soldiers. But This is a scandal because in Jesus' context, this is the oppressing army. This is the evil empire. It's it's like when Ray heals Kylo Ren, right? Through the force or whatever, right? It it turns the whole thing on its head, is This is like, you know, if Yoda prayed for Darth Vader and he got healed. Right? This is the, those are the bad guys. That's the other team. And not just like the other team, like they're wearing the different colors. No, these people have violently killed our brothers and sisters and parents and uncles and aunts. And Jesus is healing them. 
and he's helping them, and he is welcoming them into the kingdom. And so I want to be careful. I want to say, you know, look, this isn't about saying you're not with us or that's not with us, but the way of Jesus is healing. The way of Jesus is peacemaking. The way of Jesus is essentially nonviolent, and all of that power comes to bear in that preparation to respond, not through force, but through faith. And this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is a major thread that runs all throughout Jesus' philosophy of ministry and in his interpretation of the law, which, let me tell you, is the correct interpretation of the law. Uh, Matthew 5, 9 says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Later on, Jesus says this in verse 38, You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. And I'm going to pause right there. He's, he's quoting Old Testament scripture at this point, right? And I think that eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you know, we're, we're hip, we're modern. We know that eye for eye is super primitive, right? You know, come on, a tit for that, tat, like a this for that kind of a thing. That's, that's super primitive, right? That's super, you know, backwards. And eye for an eye makes the whole world go blind, right? Yeah, we've heard that phrase get tossed around. But, you know, I'm not sure that all of us appreciate how actually... Uh, eye for eye is actually a, a command of restraint to the people of Israel in their time, right? Even, even the command eye for eye or a limb for a limb, uh, even that was saying, look, don't go beyond. Don't go, don't go past the harm that's been done to you because it's the inclination of every human heart. You insulted me? Well, I'm going to... You know, you can feel the ramp... You know, Lamech... In Genesis, you know, who's like just a few generations down from Adam, Lamech sings a song about how brutal and awesome and terrible he's going to be. He says, you know, so-and-so has slayed their thousands, but I've slayed my ten thousands. And anybody who harms me, you know, you might say anyone who harms you gets hurt 70 times. Well, anybody who hurts me, I'm going to hurt them 70 times seven times. You've heard that forgiveness bit that Jesus contrasts with later on, right? And so that's that's the world that the Israelites were existing in. And that's, come on, that's the world we live in too, right? You see this on social media. You see this all the time. Somebody says something mildly insulting, which they didn't even intend to be insulting. They stepped on someone's toes, and then somebody reacts, and it's just, you know, lots of, lots of all this text in response of why that's wrong, why that's not okay, why that is incorrect, and just the way that we as human beings want to react when we have been victims of violence or we've been victims of mistreatment or even just a mild insult, we take it overboard. We, wanna, we want vengeance and then some. We want to make them pay for the thing that they did that was wrong. That is so part of our human nature. But God says eye for eye. God says, you only do what the harm that was done for you. You don't, you don't, you don't 
overdo it. If there needs to be justice, if there needs to be uh, a correction, it's eye for eye. It's not blind them. It's, you don't go further than they hurt you. Jesus says, actually, no, it's, it's more than that. It's more than that. Jesus says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is radical in saying, even as you resist, do it in a nonviolent way. Even as you are undergoing injustice, show the injustice to the oppressor, but do it in a way that's not violent. That's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, turn the other cheek. It's not only take the abuse. That's, that's not what nonviolence is about. Nonviolence is about saying, I am going to be better than the low and uh, inhumane means that you are using to try to force me. And so if someone slaps you in the cheek to get you in line, Jesus says the way to resist is to turn to them the other cheek. It's an invitation to slap me again. It's kind of, thank you, sir, can I have another? It's saying, you don't have power over me through force, and I will not allow force to control me. That's what Jesus is saying. When, when uh, there was a Roman law that said you could, uh, that you could conscript uh, you know, one of these foreigners, one of these Jews, to carry your stuff for a mile, and you could just pick somebody off the road, and you, you kind of see it in the story of Simon carrying Jesus' cross. They said, you know, well, hey, we can just take anybody in the empire, and we can just say, you do that, and you have to go at least a mile. Right? And so that was, that was sort of the law. That was legal in that time. And what Jesus is saying is, if somebody does that to you, you go with them an extra mile to shame them. You go with them an extra mile to show them love, to show them that that force doesn't dominate you. And that's how you resist. Nonviolence is not about being a doormat. It's not about being run over. It's not about agreeing with evil. It's fighting evil with good. It's refusing to give in to the way of the world and the way of violent force as we see it everywhere. Now, some people might be saying, well, aren't there some verses in the New Testament about being involved in a battle and being involved in war? And isn't there some kind of militaristic language? And yeah, you know, Paul does one time uh, make a a reference to the spiritual struggle that we are engaged in uh, using some military language and and using the language of armor. And we see that in Ephesians 6.10 and following verses. He says this, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. But here's the key verse. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And everything he says after that about the belt of truth and the the shoes of the gospel and the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, all of that, all of that is to be understood in this paradigm that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not killing people. It's not harming other humans. It's this spiritual thing. And so if you're going to do battle, if you're going to do kingdom advancement, if you're going to uh, proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God to the world, it happens in a spiritual place. It doesn't happen through fisticuffs, through hand-to-hand combat in a physical way. And then after he describes the, 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 the um, armor of God, he says this, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray for me also that whenever I speak, Words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And so what Paul is saying here is that our fear of violence can't dictate our action. And here's what I think is really interesting about this idea. Paul is an ambassador in chains. Have you ever been to an embassy? Have you ever seen an American embassy or, uh, or a foreign embassy, maybe in Washington, D.C. or something? Have you ever been to one of these places? You probably have seen one in some, like, spy movie or something where it's, oh, quick, we've got to get to the embassy and then we'll be safe or whatever, right? But you, you've seen embassies. You know what an embassy is. The embassy is this, like, it's like a little fortress palace. And that's that country's little piece of land on foreign soil saying, this is... This, this represents all the power and all the force of a foreign government is represented here, and whatever happens here is the word of that foreign power and government. It's, and, and so you say that, and you act, and you, you know, whatever the embassy says, they're representing the full force of that country, right? And so the United States has embassies in probably all the countries, I don't know, uh, but the United States has embassies like everywhere, and there are these guarded fortress palaces where the ambassador, the person who comes and speaks on behalf of that kingdom, on behalf of that democracy, on behalf of that government, comes and they exercise the will of that fortress, of that government. Paul is an ambassador, but he's in chains. And so when Paul is an ambassador in chains, he's saying, look, this is the way the kingdom works. If you're going to be an ambassador for Jesus, these will be your accommodations. You will exist as a prisoner, as an exile, as an outsider, as persecuted by the world. And when I read that and when I see the shape in the life of Jesus, I'm challenged, I think, I just wonder, like, I've never been in jail. Am I doing this right? Like, Am, am I really preaching and demonstrating the word of God and the works of Jesus, or am I too compromised with the, with the power structures of this world? Like, I kind of think that Christians ought to be ornery enough 
that we ought to be troublemaking enough to be the kind of people who get jailed for nonviolent actions. You're, you're, you're just gonna, you're gonna fix it for me. Thanks, babe. Appreciate it. You're, you're wonderful. I've been making you nervous this whole time, haven't I? Christians ought to be the kind of people who are willing to endure suffering and who are at odds with the power structures of the world. Now, I think, on the other side, a Messiah complex is really dangerous, right? And we can see that at work in our own recent history. We can see how the sensitivity and the, the kind of the myth of I'm a persecuted Christian in America, how that has really twisted and justified a lot of, well, violence and a lot of terrible actions in our recent history in our nation. And it's just like so sad, the irony of people waving Jesus flags and building gallows. How do people who worship a man who was unjustly murdered by the state think that building implements of execution are the way? I can't reconcile that. That's really hard for me to understand. And so I think it's important for us to understand that nonviolence and the way of the cross is central to the methods and the way of Jesus. Power in the kingdom of God is for service. That's what power is for. Power is given to us in order for us to serve, in order for us to heal, in order for us to rescue and save. That's what power is for. And so if God's given you gifts, if God's given you a gift of authority, that authority is for you to serve the people that you have under your authority. That authority is for you as a boss or a manager or as a mom or a dad to serve your kids or your students or your coworkers or your employees. That authority is given to you not so that you can lord it over them, but so that you can help those people. If you've been given money, money is a form of power. If you have wealth, your wealth and your property is to be used in service to other people. Your wealth and your property is to be used in a way that blesses others, in a way that divests you of your own selfish power and gives life and gives hospitality and gives to need and gives people what they need to survive and thrive and heal and be whole. If you've been given knowledge, if you've been given uh, expertise or some kind, of, uh, some kind of authority that comes along with, with knowing things and being the person who makes the decisions and, and who understands things, that's not so that you can puff yourself up. That's so that you can serve the people around you. It's so that you can speak to those situations. Knowledge is power. That is power that's been given to serve. And if we have the Holy Spirit's power, power to heal, power to save, power to rescue, that's given so that we can serve others, not so that we can build ourselves up and we can look awesome and people can think we're amazing and have great faith and all these things. 
Because let me tell you, when, when, the, when the Holy Spirit's really going, you feel like a moron. You feel like I am so out of my depth, like I'm praying for this person to be healed. I know it's not me. I know that these hands are not magic. Like, it's going to be God, or I'm going to look really silly, or this is going to be really awkward. And the power of God flows through us when we show up with humility to serve. That's what power is for. And so I think it's important that we think about how do we speak to each other on social media? How do we talk to people with whom we disagree? How do we use the authority, the wealth, the knowledge that God has given us to serve others? Mark 10 says this. Jesus says, uh, you know, when he's trying to take James and John down a notch, he says, he calls all the disciples together and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way of the cross really points out and lays bare the powerlessness of violent force. And Jesus' way is the way of the cross. Jesus' way of the cross, I mean, nobody is here on a Sunday morning singing the praises of Caesar Augustus. Nobody cares. Lots of people don't even know who that is. The only way people know who Caesar Augustus is, for for a lot of people, is if they've read the Bible, which is a story about Jesus. The cross makes a mockery of every violent kingdom. The cross, while it is the symbol of our hope and salvation, was originally designed to be an implement of torture and humiliation. It was supposed to be a symbol of Rome's dominance over the oppressed people of Israel and over all the other people that they persecuted and hurt. But the the irony and the beautiful joke that Jesus pulls is that it becomes a symbol of God's power. And that as we embrace the way of the cross, as we walk counter to the kingdoms of this world and to the power structures of this world, we find God's power, which is made perfect in our weakness. When we submit ourselves to willingly say, I'm willing to go. Now, I'll make a caveat here, and I have to be careful as a pastor because I'm supposed to use my authority to serve, right? And so in Luke 22, verse 11, kind of uh, before these things, before, the, before Luke's telling of Jesus getting arrested, Jesus t- talks to his disciples and he says, hey, I've said to you before, don't take extra sandals, don't take, a, don't take a bag, don't take this, but if you have those things now, take them. And if you have a sword, take it with you now. Because Jesus is saying, protect yourself, stay alive. He knows what's going to happen to him and he doesn't want his people to get hurt. And so is there room for protection? Yeah, that's sure. I don't think the question is, what can I get away with? I don't think the question is, what's the biggest sword I can have? What's the biggest gun I can have? What's the most protection I can get away with and still slide under God's grace and be okay and still be an obedient Christian? That's the wrong question. The question is, how do I willingly give my life to serving God in such radical obedience that I would be willing to 
be a witness. Of course, you know the, the word that we often translate witness in Scripture is martus. It's also the word that means martyr. And when you've seen Jesus at work, when you've seen him, when you know who he is, when you really grasp it, and you're really willing to obey all the way to the end, there's a natural conclusion that has happened for many people who have made that decision to follow him. And it's the way of the cross. Those are the lives that echo throughout eternity. Those are the lives that make an impact and a difference. Not those that are self-defensive, not those that are trying to build themselves up, not those that are trying to exert power over others. It's the life that gives itself in service, even to people who are hurting you. And there's dignity and beauty and glory in that. that I think Jesus calls every follower to embody in their way of life. And so today I'm not saying you have to go be a martyr. But as I look at the way of Jesus, I do think it is it's important for me to understand what that means. And it's important for every person to make that choice themselves to willingly lay down their life. It's not compulsion. It has to be done willingly. It has to be the kind of thing you agree to, that you consent to. That's why we ask, can I pray for you? It's because God honors the consent of people. God honors the will of people. God cares about what you want. And so when people say, no, I'm done, I'm done working, right? Like, <laughs> I asked you if you wanted prayer, you said, no, I'm done. But I want to be in the habit of asking lots of people, can I pray for you right now? Because that gives people the opportunity to, to say yes, to say yes to God, to yield to him and to experience some of his power changing their life, maybe healing their body, maybe delivering them from oppression. And that's what we want to experience. So as we kind of transition into prayer, we're going to do something a little different here today. I want to take just a few minutes to wait before the Lord and to just ask God to show us, are there ways, maybe we haven't been like physically violent, right? I, I don't think a lot of people here are struggling with that, right? But are there ways in which maybe we've engaged in some like revenge fantasies, right? Maybe there are some ways in which we're using our power to serve ourselves rather than to serve the people around us. Maybe there are some ways, either through our action or through our inaction. I've, I've been so convicted lately about the ways that my inaction has forced others. Maybe there are some ways that God wants to show us that we repent of the use of force and that we start to walk in a way that embraces faith. And so, Lord, I just, I just ask that you would come right now. Father... I just ask that you would speak to us. So maybe if you can, maybe you want to hold your hands up like this, like God might be giving you a present. Like, you, like there's something that you want to receive from God. Lord, would you show us in the way that we parent, in the way that we exist with our coworkers, 
and the way that we live with roommates or do friendship. The ways that we interact online, maybe the ways that we drive. The ways that we're married, if we're married. God, would you show us not how to win, but how to make peace. Lord, would you show us how to embrace people who hurt us and how to speak our truth and not be cowards to confront, to resist where we need to resist, but to do so with kindness. To do so with grace, with honesty. And from a heart of sincere love, God, would you show us who we don't want to admit our enemies are so that we can better love them? invite us to stand. We're going to do one more song of worship and